You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You'll notice that the audio is a little bit different for this recording. Uh, that's because the message on Sunday did not get recorded. Uh, instead, we had a bit of a technical snafu about 30 seconds, 60 seconds into the message. We started getting this piercing feedback through the sound system, and our sound guy, Dave, had to reboot the sound system, had to turn it all down and start it up again. And when he did so, he forgot to hit record again. Dave? You had one job, buddy. One job. That's all you had to do. But I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter that I have to sit here for the next hour and kind of go through the passage that we talked about on Sunday. But we will do what I have to do. All right. So we're in John chapter 18. And uh, our scripture reading was from the Gospel of Luke, from chapter 23 of Luke. And if you have a a moment, you might want to turn there. I'm going to read Luke 22, actually, 22, verse 66, through a little bit into chapter 23. And then I want to read uh, a little passage from John 18, which we're going to be looking at. Luke 22, verse 66 says, When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. And then from John 18, which is the account in John's gospel of Pilate's examination of Jesus, John 18, beginning of verse 28, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves, and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We're not permitted to put anyone to death, to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. 
everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, in each of these uh, texts, in fact, in all of the accounts of all of the trials uh, of Jesus, whether he is before Annas or Caiaphas or Pilate or Herod or back to Pilate again, in all of them, we see a picture of of Jesus as a man who is calm, he is cool, he is collected, he is he is sober, he is not panicked, he's not full of fear. Uh, from a human vantage point, we might look at the trials of Jesus and and expect to see somebody whose destiny and whose fate is determined by all of these external persons. Caiaphas, Annas, the soldiers, the Romans, Pilate, the Jews, chief priests, Pharisees, the council, all of them. But we don't. We 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 almost see Jesus as one who is in control of everything that is going on. And he knows that he is in control of everything that is going on. And so he's calm, purposeful, in complete control, always. He's not desperate. He's not panicking. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't feel or doesn't sense, you don't get the sense that, that he feels that anything is outside of his control. You almost, you almost sense that at any moment, Jesus realized that he could get up and walk out of the chamber, walk away from these people, and do as he had done in John 5 or John 8 or John 10 or any other time that his life was threatened, and simply walk out of the midst of them by his own will. He is only in this situation because he willed to be in this situation. Now we're looking at the third of the five trials. We've looked at the trial before Annas the trial before Caiaphas, and now we're looking at the trial before Pilate. And uh, John, of all the gospel writers, gives us more detail on the trial before Pilate than any of the other gospel writers do. So John chapter 18, verse 32, is where we finished with our last study, and now we're picking it up in verse 33. Pilate had gone out of the praetorium. The Jews had come to him and delivered Jesus. And then they did not come into the residence of Pilate, into the into his residence because they didn't want to be defiled. So Pilate had to go out in a concession to them. He went out and, and started to ask them what their accusation was. He says in verse 29, what accusation do you bring against this man? And the Jews seemed stunned by this, maybe not expecting that they were going to have to deliver any kind of accusation at all. So they answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Now that's, that's not an accusation of anything specific that would stand up in a Roman court. But at some point, they did end up giving an accusation to Pilate, maybe when they sensed that, that Pilate was going to let Jesus go without any kind of a formal accusation, because he said to them, take him and judge him according to your own law. And the Jews said to him, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. They wanted a death sentence, and they wanted Pilate to, to execute that death sentence. And they did not want to have Pilate let Jesus go because of lack of an accusation. So eventually, they brought an accusation. It's the one we just read in Luke chapter 2. When they said, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now, ask yourself, are any of those accusations true? Well, one of them is the accusation that, that he is Christ a king. That is true. That is what Jesus taught. That is what he himself said. That is what he was. But did he ever forbid to pay taxes to Caesar? Did he ever foment an insurrection? Did he ever... Uh, encourage rebellion against Rome? Was he really a threat to Roman power? That really is the issue. And that's what they're suggesting in those accusations that they raised against Jesus. These are accusations are cleverly crafted to appeal to a Roman ruler. And this is Pilate's primary question. In fact, he asks it here in John, and he asks it, we get the record of it in all four of the Gospels. Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 33. Pilate entered again into the praetorium, and he summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? 
and all four Gospels record that question, and all four Gospels also put an emphasis on the word you, indicating that Pilate's tone was something like, you, you are the king of the Jews? In other words, he, he could hardly believe that this humble, peasant-looking man, dressed in rather ordinary and humble clothing, seized by the Jews in a garden during Passover and delivered to him, was in fact the king of the Jews. That's something that would have struck Pilate as very odd. How many times did Pilate ever have a king handed over to him for trial? I mean, this would have been the first time that a charge like this was ever made. And Pilate's accusation or his question is, is curiosity mixed with a degree of contempt? You, you, you were the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And the appearance of Jesus didn't communicate anything of royalty or anything of regality. And with his humble appearance and humble clothing, you can see why Pilate would have thought that that was quite an outlandish accusation. Now, the goal of Pilate's question is to ascertain whether or not Jesus was a threat to Rome. Um, Jesus' claims to be the Son of God are not the issue in this trial. His claims to be God are not the issue. They don't come up. His supposed violations of the Sabbath, which they opposed him for and tried to kill him for on previous occasions, like John chapter 5, that's not the issue. His pronunciation of judgment upon the nation for their rebellion and their unbelief, that's not the issue. His prophecy that the temple would be destroyed, that is not the issue. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered Pilate's question with a question because Pilate's question could not be answered with a yes or no. It, it couldn't be answered with a strict yes or no because it would depend on um, what Pilate meant by king. What did Pilate mean by, by king? And what does Pilate have in mind by kingdom? That would determine how Jesus would answer this question. So Jesus asked a question to do two things, to clarify what Pilate has in mean by king and kingdom, and then to also highlight the, 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 the lack of credibility that Jesus's accusers would have had to bring charges like this before Pilate. Okay, so look at Jesus's question in verse 34. Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you that about me? All right, are you saying this on your own initiative? That is meaning, are these your charges? Are you suspicious that I'm an insurrectionist? Do you have any reason to ask me this? Now, you know that Pilate most certainly would have heard of Jesus long before this encounter with Jesus. I doubt that they ever would have had a conversation or met face to face prior to this, this early morning trial, uh, when Jesus was delivered to him. But I am, I, I would bet my last dollar that Pilate knew of Jesus of Nazareth and then heard him and had many discussions about him long before this evening. Consider the fact that Herod, who was from the northern part of Jerusalem, had heard of Jesus and had been longing to have an opportunity to meet with Jesus. We find that out from Luke 23. Uh, consider also that Jesus had often been in Jerusalem and done a number of miracles inside of Jerusalem, like the healing of the man that was lame at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. The religious leaders in Jerusalem had wanted Jesus dead for more than two years, and that, in fact, was the, the worst-kept secret in all of Jerusalem. Everybody knew about it. We find that out in chapters 6 and 7 and 8. And Pilate had to be aware of the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. You don't think that, that Pilate, whose soldiers were stationed on the, the northwest corner of the Temple Mount, would have heard about Jesus coming in and by the force of his will and his word driving the corrupt, greedy money changers out of the temple lot? You don't think Pilate would have heard of that? Do you think Pilate would have heard of the triumphal entry and maybe even have gone out to witness some of it himself when Jesus rode from Bethany to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey through crowds of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Jews chanting, 
hail to the son of David, the king of kings, and, and, and singing those praises to him. You don't think that Pilate would have heard of that? You don't think that Pilate, that would have caught Pilate's notice and the Pilate would have went outside and observed part of that and had his eye on Jesus? I think Pilate did. I think Pilate would have. And so now Jesus' question, are you saying this on your own initiative? In other words, do you have reason to suspect that these accusations are true of me? Is this is this charge, is this question coming from the perspective of Rome? Or is this charge coming from the perspective of my adversaries, Annas and Caiaphas? Because you see, if Pilate is asking this from Rome's perspective, then the question means, are you a political king who is conspiring against Caesar? Are you a threat to Caesar and Caesar's interests and Rome's interests and Rome's kingdom? And if Pilate is asking that question from the perspective of Rome, by his own initiative, then the answer is clearly no. But if Pilate is asking this question from the perspective of his of Jesus' Jewish accusers, from the perspective of Judaism, then the question would mean, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of David? Are you the king of the Jews? In which case, the question is clearly yes. And so when Jesus said, did others tell you about me? Jesus is, 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 is asking Pilate, clarify what you mean. Whose behalf are you asking this on? But second, Jesus is highlighting the lack of credibility that his accusers would have had. Who would the others be? What Jesus said, did others tell you this about me? Who would those others have been? Those others would have been Caiaphas and Annas and the Jews, chief priests and the Pharisees, whom Pilate knew, according to Matthew 27, verse 18, Pilate knew that they had delivered Jesus to him because of envy. So Pilate knew that their their motives were corrupt. He knew that it that not all of this was on the up and up. And so Jesus is making Pilate consider the source. Did others tell you this? In other words, consider the source. You're asking this on behalf of Annas and Caiaphas. Those, those are the ones who brought these accusations to me. And, and the implication of Jesus' question is clear. If you as the governor of Judea have no reason to suspect this yourself, then you should give little thought to the accusation and complaints of my enemies. That's his point. Now, Pilate was clearly frustrated with this, and his response is, is one that is filled with disdain and disgust. When he says in verse 35, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? And Pilate is there saying, confessing a couple of things. Number one, not that he is not, a, he is not a Jew, and so he is no expert in Judaism or Jewish law or Jewish uh, philosophy or religion or anything of that nature. I'm not a Jew, am I? I'm not one of you people. I don't belong to your tribe. And so there's, there's that element of disdain and disgust. I mean, Pilate, Pilate hated the Jews almost as much as they hated him. How would you feel towards somebody who wouldn't even walk into your residence lest they become unclean? Right? He would have felt slighted. Um, and, and that is how the Gentiles and the Romans, they detested the Jewish people. And the Jewish people detested the Romans. And Pilate admitted that this accusation came from the chief priests. Your own people delivered you to me. In other words, this, this accusation comes from them. And so Pilate asked him, what have you done? What have you done to deserve being hauled before me? What have you done to deserve these accusations? Now, Jesus' answer is more is more now a direct answer to the question. And he admits in verse 36 that he was a king. My kingdom. That's a confession that he has a kingdom. So he is a king then. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So he confesses that he is a king and that he has a kingdom. But Jesus defines and describes the type of kingdom over which he rules. The nature of his kingdom is a kingdom that is not of this world, of this cosmos. That word cosmos can sometimes refer to 
all of the people in a create in this created world. It can refer to this world or this globe. It can sometimes refer to the world system. Sometimes it refers to the entire created cosmos, the entire created realm. And I, and I think that that is the sense in which Jesus is using it here. My kingdom is not of this entire created realm. That means that the origin of his kingdom is not of this world. The power from which his kingdom operates and originates is not of this world. The dominion that he exercises is not of this world. The method of conquest is not worldly. His authority is not from here. The interests of that kingdom are different. He comes from heaven. He rules over and reigns in a spiritual kingdom, not a political kingdom. He did not come to challenge Rome or to set up a rival power or a rival authority. The subjects of his kingdom owe their allegiance to another realm because we are the citizens of heaven. His kingdom is not of this world. In fact, the kingdom over which he rules is sovereign even over Pilate. Now, this creation is in rebellion and it's under a curse. And, and currently God is allowing this creation to go its own way and have its own will and do its own thing. But that is not going to be the way that it will always be. And some people suggest that what Jesus is saying here is that, the, that all he's describing here is a rule in the hearts. In other words, he doesn't have any kind of a kingdom, any kind of a real throne, and he never will. He, he only rules in people's hearts. And some think that's the only manifestation of this spiritual heavenly kingdom. But I don't think that that's the case. Remember, the issue here for Pilate and in this conversation is, is Jesus a threat to Rome? And the answer to that is no. At this juncture, at this point, the answer to that is no. And what is the evidence of it? Jesus says, if I if I were, if my kingdom were of this world, then I would have servants. And I would have servants who would who would keep me from being arrested. He, he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't, if he were revolutionary, if he were fomenting rebellion, he would not he would not take on the, the greatest military power in the world without gathering together some troops and gathering together an army and having generals and people with weapons. And yet, did Pilate have any reason to suspect that Jesus had any of that? Did Jesus have servants? Yeah, he had 12. Is that an army? Is that an army that is a threat to Rome? Is that an army that's a threat to rival Caesar? I don't think so. Pilate wouldn't have thought so. And don't you think that don't you think that Pilate would have heard of Peter's conduct earlier that evening when Peter drew the sword and tried to cut off uh, somebody's head and missed and took off their ear? Don't you think that Pilate would have heard about that? Don't you think that Pilate's soldiers would have reported that to Pilate? I think Pilate would have known of that. And yet here's Jesus making that point that if I were, my kingdom were of this world, if my kingdom were a threat to Rome, we would have fought in the garden. We would have resisted that. But in fact, I rebuked Peter and I rebuked his resistance to arrest and healed. Malchus's ear and Pilate would have known of all of that and so uh, Jesus says if my if my servants were if my kingdom were of this world then my servants would have kept me from being delivered into the hands of the Romans and here's a bit of a stroke of irony in this passage when Jesus says my servants would have been fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews here's the irony of that statement if I were a king do you think I would be a prisoner of the Jews if I were the king of the Jews would I be their prisoner if, I, if I'm going to lead a revolt against Rome, do you think that the Jews would hand me over? That, that's really to the point. Do you think that the Jews would have handed him over if Jesus really was going to foment a rebellion against Rome? Of course they not. Of course they weren't. If he were a threat to Rome, they would never. Jesus would have never fallen into the hands of the Jews. If if he's if he has an army of servants that are powerful enough to resist and rebel against the largest political empire on the planet, 
do you think that he would have been taken hostage by the Jews? Never. It wouldn't have happened. And so Jesus says now in verse 30, uh, verse 36, the end of it, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. As it is, and the King James, I think, translates that, but now, and the sense of it seems to be, as it is now, my kingdom is not of this realm. And he uses different words there to speak of, of this realm. He could have said this world again, but he didn't, uh, of this realm. And, and, and I think the sense of it seems to be, as it is now, but what will it someday be? Is Will there come a time when Jesus Christ is a threat to the political powers and the kingdoms and the structures of this world? Yeah, there will be a time. The Bible says that he will reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem and the nations will become his. And he will return in glory with his angels and he will, he will mete out retribution to those who do not obey the Lord Jesus Christ and do not obey the gospel and do not believe. He will bring about a, an execution of justice and he will sit on the throne of his father David and he will rule in Jerusalem and the saints will rule with him. That is the promise of the Old Testament. That's the expectation of the Old Testament prophets and, and that's what they anticipated. And that will happen. That still will happen. But as it is now, at this point, at this juncture, he is no threat to Rome because he didn't come to establish an ethnic political kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. It will come crashing into this world at some point. But this was not the point because he didn't come at this point to set up that kingdom. He came at this point to do something else, which is his commission in verses 30. 7 and 38. And we're looking today at the nature of his kingdom, the nature of his commission. We looked at the nature of his kingdom and now the nature of his commission. And one more thing I would, I would bring up here, just kind of a, a, a something of interest. Pilate would have, Pilate should have been able to sense that something was fishy here. Consider it from this perspective. The Jews hated the Romans. The Romans had their boot on the neck of the Jews and they exacted from them taxes and, and, uh, uh, fines and fees and all of that stuff. They, they took their money. The Romans had presence in the land of Israel. They had uh, palaces there built by Gentiles. They had uh, temples and religious worship going on there that was done by Gentiles. And, and they had idolatry going on. And they, this is the presence of a Gentile in the land of Israel to, to the Jew was defiling. And the, to hear a Gentile speak and the Greek language being spoken inside of the nation of Israel was a reminder to them that they were under the boot of Rome. And they hated they hated Gentiles and they hated the Romans. They resented the Romans with a, the white hot hatred of a thousand sons. They hated them. And they would have gladly kicked Rome out of their land. They would have gladly taken back their national sovereignty, but they couldn't because Rome was the largest and most powerful military force on the planet. And they kept the Jews in subjection to them. Uh, even at this very moment, that was the case. And, and the Jews so hated the Romans that they detested taxpayers because taxpayers were Jewish citizens who exacted money from their own people to turn it over to the enemy who was the Jews, or sorry, who was the Romans. So to the Jews, an enemy of Rome was a friend of the Jews. And to the Jews, an enemy of the Jews was a friend of Rome. There was no middle ground. They hated the Romans. And now these Jews show up and stand before Pilate. And they say, and their objection is that Jesus was a threat to Rome. And Jesus is suggesting that they not pay taxes to Caesar. And, and it's almost as if these Jews show up and say, well, we want you to deal with this because really this is not good for Rome and this is not good for, for Caesar. Really? I mean, if Jesus was really a threat to Rome, the Jews would have never handed him over to the Romans. Never. If Jesus was honestly a threat to Caesar's power or to Pilate 
or to Roman uh, domination in the land, they would have never handed Jesus over. <laughs> you need to take care of this man because he, we don't like him because he's telling us not to pay taxes to Caesar, said no Jew ever. And so if Jesus were a threat to Rome, they would have never handed him over. All right, the nature of his commission. So Pilate asked again in verse 37, therefore, Pilate said to him, so you were king. Now notice what's left off there. The, 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 the question has changed a little bit. He doesn't ask, so you are the king of the Jews, but so you are a king. And it's almost as if Pilate is beginning to get that the type of kingdom that Jesus is king over and the type of king that Jesus is, is not necessarily an ethnic king or a national king, which might be a rival or a threat to Rome. Almost like Pilate gets that. But Jesus's answer indicates that maybe there's still something in Pilate's question that indicates that he doesn't understand exactly what is at stake or exactly what's going on. Because Jesus says, you say correctly that I am a king. And Leon Morrison, his exegetical commentary on the Gospel of John, says that that is not an easy phrase at the beginning of that answer that Jesus gives there to translate. Because it, it, Jesus is affirming what Pilate said, but it, it's anything but an enthusiastic affirmation of Pilate's question or Pilate's statement, so you are a king. It would be, to catch the sense of it, Leon Morris suggests, it would almost be as if Jesus were saying, I didn't say that, you did. But having you having said that, I can hardly deny that that is the case. So it's as if Jesus is saying, yes, I am a king, but I'm not making the claim regarding my kingship, maybe, as you intend in that question. So, yes, there's an element in which I am a king. You say that correctly, that I am a king. But then Jesus gives more clarification and says, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And this describes his commission. This is the reason that he has been born. And this is the reason that he has come into the world. Those two statements together, I have been born and come into the world, they indicate two essential elements of Jesus in the incarnation. Number one, that he existed prior to coming to this earth. Then we get that from when he says, I have come into this world, indicating that there was a time when he was outside of this world and stepped into it. And I have been born. The manner of him stepping into the world is through the natural birth process, as we see uh, in Mary and him being born of a woman. For this I have been born and come into the world to testify to the truth. And we have, I, we have to, I think, take uh, truth there in its most general sense. There's nothing in the context which might indicate that we should restrict this to some aspect of the truth or one particular thing that is true, but testifying to the truth. And, and truly what Jesus spoke was the truth regarding all things. Everything that he spoke of was true. Everything that he said was true because he spoke the words that the father of truth gave him to speak. And so he gave the truth regarding sin and salvation and the Father and the Spirit and the kingdom and the gospel and heaven and hell and judgment and righteousness and repentance. Uh, all of those things that Jesus spoke, he has testified to the truth. The king of truth came into a world of lies, spoke to a kingdom of lies, ruled over by the father of lies. And everything that he spoke regarding, the tr regarding anything was, in fact, truth. It was true. And that's one of the main themes of the Gospel of John, truth. I won't read to you all of the passages that we could read, but to show you how this kind of crops up throughout the Gospel of John, consider that in John's prologue, chapter 1, verse 14, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 8, 31 to 32, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. 
What he came to give was the truth by which those who are his people would be set free. And they would continue in that truth, evidencing that they are indeed his people. John 8, verse 40. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. And then he said to the Jews in John 8, 44, you are the father of the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. And remember John, Jesus said in John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the father but through me. So Jesus spoke the truth. He did the truth. He revealed the truth. He fully displayed the nature of the father of truth. That is what he came to do, to testify to the truth. Now he says at the end of verse 36, 37, sorry, Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. This describes his subjects. Those who belong to him hear his voice. Those who are his people will respond to the truth. Now, Jesus uses similar language in John 10 when with the shepherd and the sheep analogy, he says in John 10, 3 through 4, to him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them. And they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. That's the similar language. You notice the similarity between everyone who is of the truth hears my voice and those who are my sheep because the Father has given to them to me, hears my voice. So when speaking as a shepherd, Jesus says that those who are his are his sheep. And one thing characterizes his sheep in contrast to all of the goats, all of those who are not his sheep, namely that they hear his voice. When speaking as the king of truth, Jesus says that those who are his are of the truth. And those who are of the truth, one thing characterizes them that is different from those who are not of the truth, namely, that they hear his voice. It's similar language because the concept is similar. Namely, that those whom the Father has given to him, who are his, whether we say they are of the truth, or whether we say that they are his sheep, they hear his voice. They hear his voice. His subjects, those to whom the truth comes with power and a regenerating influence, they are his people. And many people hear the truth, many people hear with their ears, but they don't hear. And the word hear is a word that means to hear it and to obey it, to accept it, to embrace it, to love it, to respond to it, to obey it. Those who belong to him hear the truth and they obey it. So that describes his subjects, but it also describes the weapons of his kingdom. In other words, this is a king of truth over a kingdom of truth, not from this world. And what is the weapon that this king advances and uses to advance his kingdom of truth, it is the truth. Those who he, he came to testify to the truth because it is by the truth that the kingdom advances. And so he is the king of truth. He doesn't advance his kingdom with swords and guns and military campaigns. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We proclaim the truth. We defend the truth. We advance the truth. Those who belong to him yield to the truth. And by truth, the king of truth advances the kingdom of truth against the kingdom of lies and the kingdom of darkness. All right, so now Pilate, is he of the truth or not? Well, his reaction indicates that he is not of the truth. Pilate asked the question in verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, there are two ways to take that. Two ways to take Pilate's question. First, it's possible, I guess, that Pilate could be 
uh, asking this question as part of an honest inquiry. So, Jesus, what is truth? Tell me, you know, crossing his arms and sit, pull up a chair, sitting down next to him face to face. You, you speak as one who knows the truth. Please tell me what exactly is truth, because I've been wondering and I, I want to know what the truth about things really is. And do you think that that's what Pilate was getting at? Do you think we should take his question as an honest inquiry? I don't think so. I think this was Pilate's way of stopping the discussion. This is Pilate's way of dismissing Jesus. But to be skeptical, to be cynical, to be dismissal of the whole thing. And so Pilate just asked the question in a, in a cynical, sarcastic, snarky, sniping kind of way. What is truth? What is truth? Pilate was a man who had grown up in the Roman system of education and he had been exposed to all the philosophers and Plato and and all of the all of the before Christ philosophers and their views of truth and their views of reality and their views of life and philosophy and all of that and, and all kinds of conflicting attempts and at explaining reality and conflicting approaches to the world and the question of what is true and whether truth can be known and how do we know what truth and true is this is the attitude of a man who just blew it all off and said I, what is truth as if anybody can know what truth is, as if truth can even be known. Pilate was the ultimate postmodernist. Postmodernist. Do you know what a postmodernist is? A postmodernist is somebody who believes the truth cannot be known, or the truth, if it even exists, cannot be known fully, or they doubt that even truth exists. That's postmodernism. Postmodernism is the ultimate skepticism regarding the nature and knowability of truth. Postmodernism is ultimate skepticism about the nature and knowability of truth. And many postmodernists will see it all the time in our culture and environment. People talk this way constantly. You'll hear people say, the truth cannot be known. You try and come in and explain the gospel or explain truth to them and say, the truth cannot be known. And my answer to that is, is that true? Is it true that the truth cannot be known? Because you seem to know that the truth about truth cannot be known. And if you know that truth cannot be known, then you know that truth, which means that something true can be known which means the truth can be known and it can't be not known. See how it's self-contradictory? Or some people will say truth does not exist. Well, does that truth exist? The truth, the truth does not exist. Does that exist? Because you just made a truth claim, namely the truth does not exist. And so if you say the truth does not exist, then you can't possibly know that that statement, the truth does not exist, is actually true. Or they'll say nothing is ultimately true. Nothing is ultimately true. Well, is that statement ultimately true? You're telling me what is ultimately true, and you're using an ultimate truth to tell me that ultimately truth does not exist, or that nothing is ultimately true. But if the statement that nothing is ultimately true is ultimately true, then that statement is false. Or people will say, well, we make truth up as we go. We just make it up as we go. We're constantly inventing truth. It used to be true that slavery was evil. Now it's true that slavery is bad. And it used to be true that this was true, and now it's true that this is true. We're making this up. We're evolving constantly, and with our with our evolving of, of humanity, we're also evolving our view of truth, and we're making it up as we go along. Well, if we're making truth up as we go along, then you're just making that up, in which case it wasn't true 10 minutes ago, or it might not have been true 10 minutes ago, and if you're just making it up, then I have no reason to believe that what you've just made up is actually true. We're fifth, people say, you know, your truth is not my truth, and my truth is not your truth. You've heard people say that. Well, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. And it might be true for me, but it's not necessarily true for you. This is my truth. This is what I have discovered is true. To that, I would just say, well, that's your truth, and your truth is your truth, and my truth is that you're wrong. My truth is that truth is knowable, and that I have that truth. Now, see, truth is an, the truth of truth is an axiomatic truth. I'll say that again. Truth of truth, the truth of truth, 
is an axiomatic truth, meaning that the minute you begin to deny that truth exists, you fall into a morass of self-refuting nonsense. You cannot deny the truthfulness of truth, the existence of truth, or the knowability of truth without affirming the existence of truth and the knowability of truth. Truth, the existence of it, and the knowability of it is axiomatic. And the minute you begin to deny it, you actually are affirming what you are attempting to deny. And there is no way around that. And this, postmodernism, ultimate skepticism regarding the nature and knowability of truth, this is the dominant worldview of the culture in which we live. We swim in postmodern waters. We breathe postmodern air. It dominates the secular university campus, which does not exist anymore, to communicate or to discover truth, but to question truth. It is the dominant worldview of the of the entertainment industry, of Hollywood, of what is on television. It is the dominant worldview of the political class. It is the dominant worldview of leftism and progressivism and Marxism. It's the dominant worldview of atheism. This is, postmodernism is the dominant worldview of our entire culture. What is truth, Pilate asked. That's not a, it's not a serious inquiry, but it was an expression of his skepticism. Now, Christians, Christians can never ask the question of what Pilate just asked. It is impossible for a Christian to say, what is truth? And to have that kind of attitude, because that type of skepticism and cynicism can never characterize a believer. It can never characterize a believer because to do so is to deny everything that we know is true. It's not just to deny one or two things in scripture. It is to deny all of the Christian worldview, all of Christian doctrine, and all of Christian truth claims. All of it. No Christian can say that because every Christian, in order to be a Christian, must affirm not only the truth is knowable, but that truth has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ and that we have been brought to a knowledge of the truth. In today's circles, and many even in conservative Christian circles, it's fashionable to think that it's, it is humility to deny the truth is that anything is ultimately true and that we can know it. You'll hear people say, well, you know, I don't know. This is just kind of my narrative, and it might be your narrative. And this is this was the mentality or the thinking, the theology of the emergent church movement, which was in vogue, you know, a decade ago and at its height a decade ago. And people said, well, we don't know anything for sure. You know, all we all we have is stories and narratives that we're going off of. But ultimate reality, we're all still discovering it. That was the the humility of the Brian McLarens and the Doug Pagets and the Rob Bells that we can't really know anything for sure. We're all just kind of taking our best stab at it. That's not humility, friends. That's heresy. It doesn't make you humble. It makes you a heretic to just just talk like that. And some people think that for us to affirm as Christians that we know the truth, we have the truth, that that's arrogant, that we know what ultimate reality is. But that's not arrogance. Arrogance is when you think that your knowledge of the truth is due to the fact that you're smarter or brighter or wiser or better than other people in some way. That's arrogant. But we don't believe that as Christians. We don't believe that our understanding and knowledge of the truth and our and our, our conviction regarding ultimate reality is due to us being smarter or brighter or wiser or better than other people. We believe that it is because God has, in his grace has revealed it to us. We believe it's because God has spoken and he has revealed it and he opened our eyes and he changed our hearts and he gave us a spirit to understand it. And so all of this is a work of grace. It's not, we didn't deserve it. And we certainly have nothing in which to boast. And all we can say is, I know the truth because God has made it known and he has revealed it to me. 
and to, 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 to feign uncertainty about what God has revealed is not humility. It's arrogance. It is me saying, yes, God has spoken, but ultimately I judge that we cannot be sure about it. That's not humility. That's heresy. It's claiming to that you know better than God what is true. Now, Christians, we live in a world full of pilots. We live in a world full of people that deny and question the existence and knowability of absolute truth. And so we are called to do the same thing that Jesus did. And that is, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.13, to testify the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Our world is filled with pilots, and we are called to boldly testify to the truth in a world that denies the truth exists. And anything less than that is a dereliction of duty. Anything less is a dereliction of duty. Even when it costs us, even before skeptics, even in a hostile environment, that is what we are called to do. Now, one final irony from this whole passage. Here, Pilate asked this question, what is truth? And he was standing in the presence of the one who is truth incarnate. How ironic. How ironic. How blind and willfully ignorant can lost men be? Look at Pilate. That's your answer. How close can somebody be to the truth and yet still be very far away from it? Look at Pilate. That's your answer. At no time in Pilate's life was he closer to the truth than at this moment. And yet at no time in Pilate's life was he further away from the truth than he was at this moment. He is as close to the truth as he had ever been, and yet still as far away from it as he had ever been. That's the irony. Well, that's John 18, verse 33 through 38. And until next time, may God bless you and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.